people welcome to the patrama party where we drop acid for the first time and just as it hits we go outside to pile into our friend's car only to find that someone smashed the window out and stole the stereo system (laughs) that didn't happen to me but it did happen to my friends in high school terrible can you imagine just a fun chill hallucinogenic experience so grab your drugs and your stereo system and let's get into it I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about feeling unseen and unheard. I think for a lot of us who grew up in the 80s or 90s when the parenting style was like, I mean, not everyone's parenting style, but a common parenting style was like, you know, if you're going to cry, you can go into your room, right? Like maybe this is this topic is super relatable, but of course, Those parents, like people who grew up in the 50s and 60s when the ethos was like children are meant to be seen and not heard, definitely experience this form of trauma. If you grew up around narcissists, have narcissists in the family, work with narcissists, partnered with a narcissist. If you've been around a narcissist ever, (laughs) you 100% have experienced feeling unseen and unheard. But also if you're queer, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're not able-bodied, if you're a man with tender feelings in the patriarchy, then it is very likely that you too have experienced feeling unseen or unheard at some point. It's a super ubiquitous experience and it's really fucking damaging to our mental health. So to help us get some clarity around it, I'm so excited to welcome licensed clinical social worker, spiritual herbalist, and tarot reader, Nat Strafaci to the show. Hi, Nat. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me, Remy. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. And to get us started, let's chat about your astrology. You are a Leo sun cancer rising virgo moon which is so fascinating yes cancer rising in my mind would make such a lovely therapist because cancer can be so nurturing it has that warm maternal energy leo keeps it fun and a little spunky but also super generous of spirit leos are just some of the most giving people it's such a big-hearted sign and then your moon Man, I can't tell you how many therapists I've had on who have an earth moon like you do, both Capricorn and Virgo, really, like I'm not really Taurus, but Capricorn and Virgo again and again, which to me, as I've said on here before, it makes all the sense for a therapist because, and maybe you know this, the moon rules your emotional landscape and both Cap and Virgo want order and organization. Virgo is the healer of the Zodiac along with Pisces. So it super makes sense to have Virgo in a moon placement for a therapist, right? Because this is someone who heals the emotional realm through organizing and creating order out of chaos. And I have to say, just the other day, I was thinking about this thing my Al-Anon sponsor told me years and years ago, back when I was in Al-Anon still. She said that the healing process is like sorting seeds, Like you get a huge, messy pile of all different kinds of seeds all thrown together. And when you heal, it's like you're sorting through that pile, making smaller piles, putting all the right seeds together. Like the sunflower seeds go over here, 
the flax seeds go over here, you know, the whatever other kinds of seeds there are over there. And that really resonates for me even more so today than it did when she told me. And it's so funny because I think that is such Virgo energy. And when I think about that analogy, I really think about Virgo in the moon placement. Yeah, I love that metaphor for the seeds and just organizing them. Because when we have a whole pile of mixed up things in front of us, it can be really easy to be like, this is just how it is. I have to like, accept this, live with the mess and the chaos, or blame ourselves. Like I did this and there's no fixing it. And so healing is really just about like taking a step back, taking a breath and figuring out, okay, how do I want to feel? What systems work for me? Do I need to like enlist the support of my family and community to help me with these seeds? Is there an elder who has like more knowledge about the flax seeds versus the sun, the sunflower seeds? Um, so I love that so much. But in terms of my moon placement, yeah, this is so funny because I have a couple of very dear friends who are also therapists and they also have a moon in Virgo. And we laugh all the time because it can be very useful in our line of work and then very detrimental as like people on their own mental health and healing journey. Because, you know, I think the desire of Virgo is like, right, I want to define, I want to create order. Where is the logic here? Mm. And the reality is like, we, there's not always logic to our emotions. There isn't always categories that exist to make sense. And so I, I love my Virgo moon. I, it keeps me grounded. It gives me like a nice map, a good sense of direction. I really had to work with that placement the most. I feel like the Leo sun and the cancer rising. I'm like, Oh yeah, love those placements. Let's go. Let's party. You know, let me read your energy. (laughs) See me, you know, like those have been less of a journey for me to really like embody. And I think earlier on in my career, my Virgo moon, it was tough because I had to go on my own journey of like healing validating my emotions and not being hard on myself or judging myself when like the logic wasn't so clear. That makes sense. Totally makes sense. Well, isn't that great though, that like things being illogical makes sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that Mm -hmm. things being illogical is logical. Right? Like, I mean that just that in itself that we can just say like, it makes sense that it doesn't make sense. You know, Mm -hmm. it was total chaos. And also, I mean, I'm just going to nerd out on astrology for a second, but like the moon placement is, is the dreamscape, right? It's like, it's the land of symbols. It's the land of feelings and it's, it's not the realm of the mind, right? Like it, like Mercury oversees the mind, cancer oversees the moon. And I also think like, to some extent, Pisces also oversees the moon a bit, But like, these are just, these are, it's a dreamscape area. And it just is like, sometimes we just have to let go of needing to have everything to have all the piles. (laughs) Yes. You know, sometimes the piles, we don't get the, we don't get to have the piles and it's just the way it is. And it's fine. Yes. Yes. We don't have to have the piles and we can cultivate safety within ourselves to not have all the piles figured out. 
Yes. Oh, yes. So good. So good. Okay, cool. I'm going to dive into my experience with this. While I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, ideas, movie quotes. Like, you know, if you want to throw in a nobody puts baby in the corner at any point. Okay. (laughs) Please feel free. Or you can just chill out, relax, organize your closet. Either way, I'll turn some questions over to you at the end. How does that sound? Sounds great. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, cool. Here we go. So I was raised around narcissism. And the biggest way that that impacted me was the feeling of not being seen. It's funny because I think if the people I went to high school and middle school with heard me say that, they'd be like, what are you talking about? You were front and center of a million things. And that's true. I was super active in school growing up. I was on the dance team, choir, class president, right? Like all these things that in retrospect, I can't help but wonder if they were coping strategies to try to feel seen because it just wasn't happening at home. I could name a million examples of this, but here's one that recently occurred to me. And I'll also say, if you grew up around narcissism and you're just now realizing it, memories will start to reveal themselves slowly where you'll be like, wait, what? No, that wasn't okay. So when I was growing up, I was spanked like many children were in the eighties. But I remember that one of the things my mom would say when she spanked us was that it hurt her more than it hurt us. It hurt her more to hit us than it hurt us to be hit. So here's my mom pulling out a wooden board hitting us with it repeatedly, we're sobbing. And then on top of it, telling us that her pain was bigger than ours in that moment. It's one of those moments when as a child, it becomes ingrained that your pain doesn't matter, but more specifically that your feelings will never be as important as your parents' feelings. And that was how I felt almost all the time with my mom. My pain just didn't matter. When I was growing up, anytime I told her that she had upset me or hurt my feelings, she would say, you're attacking me and I don't deserve this. I gave up everything for you. 
my mom had been severely abused as a child and she was also a single mom. She left my dad because he was abusive and then he never paid child support. So between those two things, my mom expected that we revere her, feel sorry for her, take care of her emotionally, et cetera, et cetera. She was the one in the house whose pain was prioritized. Her suffering was on full display but ours was constantly silenced or disregarded. And I should also say this was all sort of unpredictable. There were times when my mom was really kind and supportive when I was going through something. But when I look back on it, it was only if it didn't compete with her emotions being prioritized. Another example of this is this one time when I was in high school I had a presentation the next day in my history class and I needed to make a poster for it. So I went to the hall closet because there was a really big pad of thick drawing paper in there, like the size of a poster board. And I took a piece of this paper from the pad and started making my poster in the living room. And my mom came out, saw what I was doing and went absolutely apeshit. She started screaming and saying that that was her paper and I had no right to use it that all we did was use her, which was something she actually said a lot, that we used her. And then she said that I was grounded and made me go to my room. So I went to my room sobbing and I called my boyfriend in tears, telling him what had happened and that I was grounded. And my mom threw open the door, ripped my phone out of my hands, pulled it out of the wall because this was the 90s when people had landlines. And then she left and slammed the door. And that example is so interesting to me because not only was I not being seen for the fact that I was being a good student, right, which was something she expected of me, but I also wasn't allowed to be heard, literally. I wasn't allowed to tell anyone about it, as is really common with narcissists, because she didn't want my boyfriend to have a bad opinion of her. That was the most important thing. Not that I was crying, not that I was upset, not that I'd been, you know, trying to keep up my grades, but that my boyfriend might not like her as a result of her behavior. So rather than change her behavior or have a conversation with me, I had to be silenced literally by taking my phone so that I couldn't have that conversation with him. So by the way, if you're not familiar with narcissism and these stories resonate, I encourage you to do research into covert narcissism, which is different from grandiose narcissism and a little harder to identify, I think. I also have two episodes on narcissism in case that's helpful and two episodes on parentification, which almost always goes hand in hand with covert narcissism. With my dad, it was worse. And that was because my dad was and is, he's still alive, a, a, um, a raging narcissist, but unlike, and I mean, raging, I guess in both senses of the word, but unlike my mom, he was super emotionally shut off. My mom raged, but her rage was almost always rooted in an emotional meltdown. So if we could sort of tend to her emotions or take care of her emotions in some way, we could sort of fix the situation. My dad raged for reasons like, uh, I mean, one time we were on a road trip and I needed to pee like when I was 13 and, and, and then he raged at me another time because I'd misplaced a $10 bill when I was eight and there was never a way to fix it because he never exposed his emotional landscape in any way with my mom. 
I felt seen as long as I was happy and people pleasing and successful and didn't make any mistakes, right? Like apparently using her art paper was a mistake, but of course I couldn't have known that. But like, if I could stay out of those things and just like be happy and, and boost up her self-esteem and boost up um, her cheerfulness, then I could feel seen. I, I just wasn't allowed to be sad with her in general, right? Like that would lead me to be, uh, to being rejected in various ways. But if I stayed upbeat, I could stay on good terms with my mom. With my dad, I was just never seen. He didn't give two shits about my success at school. He couldn't care less that I was class president or on the dance team. I've told this story before, but one time I went out to visit him and I brought a video of my recital with me because I just with every fiber of my being, wanted him to see me as talented and creative. My dad's a musician. So I wanted him to see me as talented and creative and to like be proud of me. And one day his girlfriend was like, do you want to watch Remy's dance video? And he just went, nope. And that was that. My dad never celebrated me or connected with me emotionally. He didn't ask how I was or how my life was going. The best I could hope for was not being on the receiving end of his wrath, but feeling seen or heard by my dad was not going to happen. And I should say, actually, there were times when my dad would say like, how are you doing? How's it going? And I would like kind of start to say something that was meaningful that went beyond just like surface stuff. And he would like get off the phone really fast or change the subject really fast or something like that, which is really common actually with narcissists that they can't have meaningful connection. When I was 17, I told him that he'd hurt my feelings and his response. And that was the first time I'd ever done that. And his response was, well, you hurt my feelings all those times you came out for the summer and spent the night at your friend's houses. So he literally was like talking about when I was 10 or 12 and would sleep over at my friend's house. So yeah, again, my pain was just never acknowledged. It wasn't important. It wasn't tended to. It didn't matter. When I was in my mid-20s, my dad and I were kind of tenuously in a better place in our relationship. My come from was I was always the one who was trying to repair with everyone in my family. My family members would sort of like ice me out or whatever, you know, be mad at me. And I and I was the one who would try to fix. So anyway. I wrote him a card at one point and asked him to tell me three things that he liked about me. And I did, I like wrote out a bunch of things that I liked about him. And then I, I asked him if he could tell me three things that he liked about me and he just never responded to it. And I thought maybe he didn't get the card, but then later I stayed at his house for a couple of days and I saw the card sort of like shuffled in with some stuff at his house and it had been opened but he he never mentioned it to me. So I came into adulthood feeling super unseen, super unheard. But and I and I want to add another layer of this outside of childhood because normally I think I like talk about how this impacts me as an adult, but it didn't stop in adulthood. <laughs> because as an adult woman, I have felt super unseen and unheard. It has been expressed to me in multiple ways, sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly, that I don't really matter as a human. I'm just meant to look pretty, but also not too pretty or sexual because then I'm a slut. 
multiple men I've been with have told me that they wanted me to change what I was wearing because they thought I looked slutty numerous times. And this, like when I was writing this out, I was like, how is this true? But it's true. Numerous times men I did not know at all have walked up to me and told me they didn't like what I was wearing, that I would look so much better if I changed X, Y, Z thing. And of course, you know, we're bombarded with ads and airbrushing and a culture that targets women and intentionally makes them feel like they don't matter if they don't look like a 20 year old in their fifties. Right. And all of that has contributed to how unseen I feel in my humanity. It's, it's like, I'm this two dimensional cardboard cutout whose job it is to satisfy whatever expectation the man standing in front of me happens to have in that moment. When Roe was overturned, I really fucking spiraled out. I mean, I, I was a wreck. Of course, that was for many reasons, but there was a massive trigger around feeling like women, including me, aren't seen as human in our culture, right? Like, it's our job to push babies out and shut the fuck up. And with so many women choosing not to have kids now or choosing to wait till their careers are in place... It felt like these patriarchy engines, namely the religious right, kicked into gear and were like, how dare you think you have agency over your own life and your own body? You're not a person. You're a baby generator. I, I, I felt totally unseen. Which brings me to an experience I had recently. I was working with my co- and I'll, and I'll just pause to say, like, I always speak from my perspective and I am a cisgender um, woman. I can't even imagine what it felt like for people who don't identify as women who are capable of pregnancy and who birth, how, how unseen they felt in that fucking process. Like, what the fuck? All of this brings me to an experience I had recently. I was working with my coach and we were talking about how a lot of the relationships I've had with men have a pattern. So many of the men that I've been romantic with have been really hot and cold with me. And she was like, if we're looking at this from a shadow perspective, there's something about that that works for you. So what is it? If a guy were to walk up to you today and say, I'm all in, I want to do this with you. What part of you wouldn't want that? And before I even knew why I was saying it, I blurted out, I don't want to be controlled. And the way that I know if something is really true for me when I'm talking it through in therapy is if I start crying. It's like my body's indicator that I've hit the thing that needs my attention. And this was one of those moments. I just started crying and I was like, oh, shit, this is real for me. When I think about that and I think about what that means, the wound behind that is not feeling seen as fully human by men starting with my dad. My dad was such a dictator. He was mean. He was strict. We got in trouble if we didn't say yes, sir, or no, sir. We were there to make him feel powerful. We weren't actual humans with feelings that mattered. And then, like I mentioned earlier, as I started dating, especially in the early years of my life, I had multiple experiences with guys telling me I needed to change my outfit. One guy in particular, he'd been my best friend all through high school. 
And then we dated at the end of high school, which was kind of a dumpster fire. I wasn't actually attracted to him, but I didn't want to tell him that because I felt bad. So it all sort of imploded in this codependent people pleasing nightmare. But anyway, we, we sort of worked through it. I went to visit him in Davis when we were in college. He was going to UC Davis and we were about to go meet up with his friends. And he told me to change because he didn't want them to get the wrong idea about me. I really can't emphasize enough the heartbreak of that moment. This was someone who I had loved as a best friend and who I thought deeply knew and respected me and loved me. And suddenly he's telling me that I'm just a reflection of him to these people that he'd known for like less than a year when he and I had been best friends for like five years and we'd been through all this stuff together. What was really crazy about that moment This guy told me to change and I did because I was, you know, not who I am now, (laughs) but I wouldn't stop crying, which like we just talked about me crying and how like it's such a it's such an indicator for me. But we were in his car driving to this barbecue and I'm just weeping, like fully weeping into my hands. And finally, I told him, you need to take me back to your house because I'm just not going to be able to socialize. I can't stop crying. And he did. He drove me back, dropped me off, went to the barbecue, stayed at their house overnight, showed up the next morning, didn't say a word to me, walked right past me, didn't say a word to me, and then took me to the airport in silence because I was upset that he told me to change because he thought I looked like a slut. (laughs) It was just so deeply cruel. And man, if there was ever a moment in my life when I didn't feel seen in my humanity, when I felt like who I was as a person didn't matter, that my needs were meaningless, that my feelings were meaningless, that was one of those moments. And again, this wasn't just some dude I'd recently met. This was someone I cared for deeply who I thought also cared for me. But this control piece, right, makes me feel so unseen In my exploration of being in relationship to men and looking deeper into why I haven't ever as an adult had a proper boyfriend, meaning after high school, I've never been with someone and been like, hi, good to see you. This is blah, blah. He's my boyfriend, right? Like that's never happened to me post high school. When I was thinking about that, I really tapped into this core wound around These people, these people, right, in my head, these people don't see me as human. They don't see me. When I was in my late 20s, I was living in San Francisco and waiting tables to put myself through fashion school. And the restaurant where I worked had this chef who was becoming increasingly friendly with me. And then one night he tried to kiss my neck and I dodged it. The next time I came into work, it was my job to set up all the tables with silverware and plates and stuff. And... Not coincidentally, suddenly he had left all of this stuff all over the restaurant, just this huge mess of dirty dishes and plates all over, like all these tables, cups, like a lamp, his computer, just stuff everywhere. This huge mess for me to clean up, which felt very much like, oh, you're not going to fuck me. Well, then fuck you. And when I went downstairs and found him and asked him about it and was like, This is this sets me back like 45 minutes. This isn't part of my job description to have to clean the whole dining room before I set up. It's supposed to be clean when I walk in. He had me fired. (laughs) So again, this deep distrust of men 
because this feeling of like, I'm not a person to them. They just want to control me to use me for their gain in some way. And I have to be on guard all the time because I'm really just a way for them to feel powerful or to get sex or to be a trophy or whatever it is. There's one last thing I want to add here that I think a lot of people can probably relate to. Years ago, I was sexually assaulted by my roommate, who was one of my best friends at the time. And I'll just say, I'm not going to talk about the actual assault, so no trigger warning necessary. But I do want to talk about the way that it happened because it's important to this story. So the way that it happened was he was an artist. He would stay up till all hours painting in his room. And one night I couldn't sleep. I just could not sleep. And it was like three in the morning. So I took a little... um herbal sleeping pill and made myself a snack while I was waiting for it to kick in. And I saw that his light was on in his room. So I knocked and asked if I could hang out with him while I ate my little snack. He was in the corner of his room painting on an easel and I sat down on his bed and I fell asleep there from the sleeping pill. I'll end the sequence of events there. But when I told my Al-Anon sponsor what had happened, She told me that I wasn't taking responsibility for my part in the assault because I went into his room late at night and I was on his bed and that in other words, I was asking for it. I was giving him the wrong message. Obviously, that's insane and archaic and patriarchal and victim blaming and all the things. But I wanted to add that into this conversation because for anyone who's been sexually assaulted, the likelihood that everyone is going to rally around you and defend you and have your back and see that you've been victimized, unfortunately, is very slim. Not that people won't or don't, but the likelihood that someone, and a lot of times, right, it's like the cops, it's the doctor or the nurse that you go to afterwards, it's people in positions of power, right? And then other times, it's your best friend, it's your mom, it's your Al-Anon sponsor who mentors you, you know, who you super look up to. The likelihood that you won't get some kind of victim blaming, which is just another way of not seeing and not hearing people is sadly very slim and very, very traumatizing, which is why I wanted to tell that story because when we're assaulted, we know the truth and it's beyond excruciating and enraging to not be heard after being so violated. So what has been healing for me in all of this? How have I worked with this? There are a few things I can offer here. When I think about not being seen or heard, the pain there is like, I feel invisible. I feel powerless. I don't feel valued. So the healing for me has been around taking contrary action. What actions show me that I'm visible? What actions show me that I'm powerful? And what actions show me that I'm valuable to myself? A huge one for me has been setting boundaries. So like that guy who told me to change clothes, my my best friend from high school, the reason I couldn't stop crying was in part because I was so hurt by him, but it was also largely because I'd violated myself by doing it. I changed my clothes, right? I did what he wanted me to do. I didn't tell him to fuck off if he didn't like my outfit. And so I treated myself like I didn't have power and like who I was as a person didn't matter. After that thing happened with my sponsor, I very lovingly told her I couldn't work with her 
and that I didn't think she was the right fit for people who had been sexually assaulted. And then I went out and found a therapist who specialized in sexual assault because I wasn't going to allow myself to be subjected to that while I was in such a fragile state. Now, those are two very different situations and they happened years and years apart, maybe 15 years. But if the assault had happened 15 years earlier at the age I was that day of the barbecue, I most likely wouldn't have been able to set that boundary with my sponsor. Boundaries don't come overnight. And especially if you were raised in an abusive home, you have your work cut out for you because you probably have no boundaries at all, or you have really rigid boundaries where you shut everyone out and you wouldn't have had an Al-Anon sponsor in the first place because you would have been like, fuck everyone. But the only thing that's worse than someone treating you like your humanity is invisible is you treating yourself like that. So boundaries are huge for me because without them, I can't walk away from the people who refuse to see and hear me. And that's a non-negotiable for me now. People who consistently don't see or hear me, I have to set boundaries with them. And that's on me. I talk about this one a lot, but a few years ago, I went hard on affirmations. My coach designed affirmations for me that were like, my feelings matter. My needs matter. I get to be heard in my friendships. I deserve friends who reciprocate my generosity. And what was so crazy about these affirmations was that when she gave them to me, I didn't even really see why they were necessary. I wasn't like, man, I'm really prioritizing other people's needs above mine. Or like, I'm dumping all my energy into people who can't show up for me. In other words, Again, I didn't see myself. I wasn't fully on my own team. I wasn't listening to my own needs. When these needs would come up with people, I would tell myself there was something wrong with me for having them. So at the risk of repeating myself, I just really have to say, when we grow up in families where our needs are constantly being dismissed or criticized or shamed or unacknowledged, we learn to do that to ourselves. Again, Using that dude telling me to change as an example, he didn't hold a gun to my head. I could have said, bro, this is what I'm wearing because I like this outfit, period. But I didn't listen to my own core needs to be free to be myself. And that had been my pattern for years and years, all my life. So when my coach was like, we need you to work on these affirmations every day, twice a day, it was because she could see that I wasn't listening to or seeing my own needs. I was dismissing myself over and over again. So I think getting an awareness of those ways that we don't see or hear our own needs and taking contrary action, whether that looks like doing these affirmations, putting new boundaries in place, both, right? Or whatever it looks like for you. It's so important because after a couple months of doing those affirmations, I started showing up in relationships with like much firmer boundaries. I was like, yo, getting my needs met for emotional safety and respect is not up for debate which meant I had to walk away from some people and I had to completely change my relationship to other people. Another thing I want to bring in is that one of my personal favorite cognitive distortions is black and white thinking and eternity thinking, which a guest I recently had on the pod talked about. She talked about eternity thinking. Black and white thinking is like, all men want to control me because they don't see me as human, so I can't trust any of them. Eternity thinking is... It's always going to be like this. It's never going to change. These are trauma indicators. So when they pop up, I know there's trauma behind it. It's not the truth. 
It's a lie. I tell myself to protect myself from disappointment and vulnerability. And because hashtag despair, which is my other favorite thing. (laughs) So I'll go back to the other day with my coach when we located this wound around, I don't want to be controlled. We decided to do breath work with it because she was like, this is something that's deep in your cells. Your body is holding this trauma, feeling controlled and unseen by men in your cells. So let's get into your cells with breath work. So we're doing this breath work, you know, in and out, in and out. All of a sudden, I had this memory that I had totally forgotten about. Years ago, when I was living in LA, I did this emotional intelligence boot camp thing. And part of it was this five-day intensive where you had a buddy a person who was your partner through the whole thing. There are probably like 80 people in this intensive and you're interacting with all of them to some extent, but you and your buddy had to keep coming back to each other. My buddy was this guy. I think he was probably in his early thirties at the time. He was Mormon, very sort of all American, good looking, you know, sweet demeanor. But I mean, we couldn't have been more different from each other. I mean, other than the fact that we were both, you know, personable kind of outgoing people. But if there's a religion that triggers my feminist, like, I don't want to be controlled rage, I can't think of a better one than Mormonism. Anyway, he and I really bonded in this five day experience. But towards the end of it, something happened that made me feel insecure about our connection. I can't remember what it was that triggered it, but I was feeling I was just feeling insecure about whether or not I was important to him as his buddy. It had never been safe at any point in my life to tell people something like that, though. But here I am at this emotional intelligence intensive where the whole thing is about vulnerability. So I just gathered my courage. I asked him if he had a minute to talk and I told him. And I remember we were sitting down. And when I was done talking, he took a deep breath took my hands in his, looked me in the eyes and said, what can I do? So fast forward like seven years or whatever, here I am doing breath work with my coach around not feeling seen by men and men wanting to control me because I'm not human to them. And this memory suddenly pops up and I just started sobbing. It was so emotional to remember how healing it was to be seen and acknowledged and deferred to and respected by a man. He didn't try to control my experience of him by arguing with me or making me wrong or dismissing me or belittling me or any of the things I was used to. He wanted to hear me. He wanted to know what he could do so that I would feel seen by him. So for me, since black and white thinking and eternity thinking are my distortions of choice, This practice of challenging those thoughts with memories like these, even if I have a hundred examples of times that I felt unseen or unheard as a woman, and then like two of being deeply seen and heard, part of my work is using those two as anchors for me to be like, I know for a fact that not 100% of men are going to treat me like I'm not human because I've had this experience. And that means I can have more of those experiences. Also, the better I am at seeing and hearing my own needs, the better I am at identifying relationships that can provide that for me. And also the better I am at identifying relationships that can't provide that for me. When I get better at that, because I'm changing my relationship to myself, the more I draw in healthy relationships that support my new belief and new practice that I am seen and heard. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, Nat, how are you doing over there? I'm taking it all in. And I just want to say, like, thank you for choosing to be vulnerable and show up in this way, you know, and share these very personal and also formative experiences with a larger audience. I think it's really normalizing and validating. And I'm just thinking about folks who are hearing what you've experienced and I'm hoping that they're feeling seen and heard in this. So I'm taking it all in. There's a lot there. And I thank you for your honesty. Yeah. And I also hope that people are feeling seen and heard. When I think about why I started the podcast, that was a lot of the reason why. <laughs> so yeah. Well, cool. Well, then let's let's jump in. Yeah. Let me just go ahead and ask you this. In the work you do with your clients, what are the different ways you've seen people feel unseen and unheard? Yeah. Yeah. So I understand this idea of what we're talking about today as a big collective wound, right? This is a huge trauma in our society. And so how I understand healing and healing work is if it's affecting an individual, it's affecting families. If it's affecting families, it's affecting our community, it's affecting our earth, right? And so hearing all of these examples that you shared really highlight that our investment in a system that only prioritizes and sees and hears a very, very small group of people if we continue to stay invested in that without unpacking it and unlearning, yes, the harm and the trauma is absolutely going to continue, right? This system, and I should just be more clear, right? Like when I say system, I mean like the white cis heteropatriarchy, right? You said patriarchy earlier, right? So these systems of power in place that control resources, that control our society or that have a say in what is considered normal or who is safe or who is smart or what family structures are healthy or natural, right? All of these things. So I'm talking about patriarchy, white supremacy, you know, I'm talking about transphobia, ableism, da, 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 da. So when we have been told all our lives in overt and covert ways that this is how you matter in the system. This is how you're supposed to exist. Yeah, that's going to come up in therapy, <laughs> especially if you're black or brown, if you are living with different abilities, right? If you identify as queer or trans, because our validation is never going to come from these ways of life, these ways of living and being in relation and in community, or really not in relation 
and not in community, we're never going to be seen and validated, right? And that's the point. That's the point. Because that leads to isolation. That leads to, oh, I'm the problem. It's me. Mm. I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I didn't um, do enough work to make this person love me in the right way, right? So when we internalize these ideas that we are the issue, we are the problem, then this can continue to uphold these larger systems. And it's a byproduct of colonization, right? Because when we're isolated, we're not in community. When we're not in community, we don't have the opportunity to be seen and heard for our true selves, for our authentic selves. So going back to your original question, which was like, how does it show up in the therapy space? I'll just add, I'm a queer person. I'm a non-binary person. And my practice, my therapy practice really centers like queer and trans folks. One way that this shows up in the work is really figuring out how do I see and validate myself and my own authenticity and beauty and creativity and who I love and how I love how I show up? How do I like push all of these narratives aside to figure out how can I truly see myself? Cause like, we don't, we, we walk around thinking like, I can see myself. I know who I am. Right. But how do we really unpack that? You know, how do we really clear our lens from like this white cis hetero capitalist patriarchy to really honor who it is we are so that we know how to be in community. We know how to be in relation to others. And we know how to also see and hear other people, right? Mm. So yeah, queerness, transness, gender, sexuality, I'll speak to that being a theme because as we're seeing right now in legislation and all of these conversations, what's happening um, with our local and federal lawmakers, there's a really huge effort to erase the understanding that we've had since the beginning of time, erase the realities, the lived experiences of like what we would call gender expansive people, of queer and trans people. Yeah. And I think I love that you brought that in because that is absolutely true. The way that queer and trans folks have been targeted is 100. I mean, like if you're talking about feeling unseen in your humanity, that is absolutely one of one of the ways I also like um, I was watching a TikTok the other day, yesterday, actually, that talked about it was listing reasons why black people were lynched in the forties. And the reasons were like annoyed a white woman reprimanded white children who were throwing rocks at her, like things like this, that that where I was like, this is such a legacy, a, a trauma legacy of not feeling seen and not feeling heard. And like your humanity, just not getting to, matter at all to the point where your life is in danger. And I think so many people, and even as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about white, cis, hetero men who are depressed or who um, were sexually assaulted and the ways that they're also 
not able to be seen and heard just at all of these ways. And I love that you bring in this community aspect because like, yeah, this is part of the system. This is what, this is the point. And I love that you said that this is the point. The point is for you to feel like there's something wrong with you. And, and it's so, I love the way that we can think about the system trickling down to the family, because when you said that, I was like, holy shit, that is how I grew up feeling. Like, I just don't love my dad in the right way to get him to respect me. Like I, something's wrong with me. I grew up feeling so like there's something wrong with me that he yells at me. Right. And that's like, that is the system. And then that's how it ends up looking in the family. Yeah. And I'll add, you know, while it's not the work of making excuses for or saying it's okay how folks have harmed us, their actions, part of this lens, part of our own healing journey is that we expand our capacity to see, oh, things like narcissism, we know that that's a trauma response. Mm-hmm. We know that how people show up, how people who cause harm or people who abuse, you don't enter into that cycle without having experienced that yourself. Totally. Yeah. And so we don't make excuses for, we don't, we don't say that that's okay, but we must understand that the way our healing journey goes, the things we're healing from our wounds, they don't start with us. We're not the first, we're not the only. And unfortunately, right? Like this is how intergenerational trauma works. Yeah. It doesn't end there though, because also intergenerational healing, right? We have huge capacities to heal, right? Colonization doesn't get to dictate, okay, we have all this trauma, all this wounds. Well, I give up. It's the end. No. Part of the healing and the unlearning and the unpacking that happens when I'm working with folks is like, how do we divest from this? So we create new communities. What are the legacies that have been passed down to us that maybe have been hidden a bit? Who do we have to learn from? What structures are already in place? What practices did our people, regardless of where your people are from, right? What are the practices that they had in place already to stay well, to stay in relationship to each other? Because I guarantee you, long before therapy, (laughs) as we understand it in this like very short Western timeline. Long before that happened, we knew how to stay well, right? We knew how to stay well. We knew how to see each other and take care of each other. And I'm not like, I'm not saying we didn't struggle with plenty of issues back then too, but I think we've been sold this idea that therapy is the one way our problems are isolated. Our problems are either individual or they're in our family And we really have to do the work of clearing our lens and being like, no, my wounds, my trauma is connected to my caregiver's trauma. It's connected to the people who came before them. It's connected to what happened to my community when we were displaced? What happened when we were incarcerated? What happened, you know, wherever, you know, your family is in the world and their experiences of colonization like what happened there and how do I see myself in this larger structure right yeah and I love that one of the pieces you brought up was what happens as a result of this structure is isolation yes I'm curious 
what are the other ways that feeling unseen and unheard can impact our mental health? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're seeing a lot more conversation, especially I feel like in the past few months around this idea of loneliness, Mm. there's like a lot of articles being written. The science is like, yes, loneliness impacts us very negatively. Our physical health, not only our emotional, mental, spiritual health, but like physically we are unwell when we are more lonely. And the conversation kind of centers around the pandemic, right? You know, it's been over three years, but I really think that the pandemic spotlighted what wounds we were already dealing with in our culture and our society. And so with isolation and loneliness to me, um, feeling unseen and heard, that's about disconnection, right? That's about disconnection. That's about not being an authentic relationship. And I think with loneliness in particular, we don't get to practice as you brought up this really beautiful example. You got to like create a new experience for yourself, you know, like you formed new neural pathways, you had a corrective experience, right? Like when we're isolated, when we're lonely, We don't get to have those rich experiences of different possibilities. There's another way that this story can be told. I am safe to experience different ways of being in relationship, right? But we don't get to do that when we're isolated and when we're lonely. And when I'm talking about this, I'm in no way saying stop being lonely, (laughs) right? I'm saying no, loneliness and isolation is a byproduct of this collective trauma of colonization, of our individual and family trauma. So I hope that's clear. Yeah, that's totally clear. And that resonates so hard for me. Loneliness has been like, I've talked about it on here before, but I sort of came into adulthood feeling like just, there was just this gaping hole of, um, I want to say desire, but desire sounds like it has like a sexual connotation. It was, it, but it was like a longing. It was just this tremendous emptiness of longing, like this vortex of longing where I was like, I want love. But of course I didn't really know that that's what it was, but I felt so fucking lonely all the time. It reminds me of, there's a line in um, sex in the city where Carrie goes, I'm lonely. The loneliness is palpable. And I always like when I saw that episode, it never left me that those words, the loneliness is palpable. Like you can, it's like tangible. It's a fucking physical (laughs) feeling of pain and um, disconnection. Like you said, it reminds me that um, when I went, so, okay, maybe like a year ago, I was going through some old photos And I found this, I can't remember if I've talked about this on here before, but I found this photo of me and some friends in my bedroom in high school. And on the wall was this painting I had done that I had completely forgotten about. And the painting was of a girl and her eyes were really wide. Like she was terrified and coming out from the side like flo- like you don't see a body connected to it. There's just this hand floating out from the side and it's covering her mouth. It's not her hand. It's someone else's hand. And I looked at that and I was like, you know, I think at the time I didn't know why I was painting that. I was just was like, 
I was just 16. But when I looked at it as an adult and, you know, kind of putting some of those pieces together, I was like, holy fuck, like not being heard, not like literally my mouth is being muzzled by someone's hand, not feeling seen like I'm alone in this painting. It's well, I mean, I guess it was me. I don't know if I was thinking that when I painted it, but this girl is, is not she, there's no one else except this force. That's like preventing her from saying anything, you know, from, from silencing her. Right. And like, and her eyes being so wide and terrified and like that sense of loneliness that I saw in that, when I looked at it as an adult, I was just like, God, when we're not seen and heard, we don't connect. We lose connection with our own authenticity. And so we lose connection with other people. And the loneliness that that drives is so deep. Yeah, I just think that is so intense. And it actually brings me to this next question, which is how does feeling unseen and unheard as children impact our attachment styles, our relationship patterns, our communication styles when we enter adulthood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think we've we've started to touch on this, yeah. right? Um, and I have... I want to say something about attachment styles. <laughs> You're not into attachment styles. I, well, okay. I think that there's information to be gathered. I think it's a lens. And I think it's important that we're aware of its origins. I think like, you know, attachment styles, it's like in the culture now. And the way I hear people talk about it is kind of like astrology. <laughs> people who talk about it who don't necessarily have like, a larger relationship to astrology of like, well, I'm just an avoidant attachment and that's who I am. Right. Mm. I'm just a Virgo moon and that's who I am. But like, as we understand having the lens of astrology means that we are expanding our awareness of who we are, how we show up, our needs, our desires, how we're in relationship. Right. And so like attachment styles, it's like, this is giving you maybe more awareness of who you are and how you show up, but this is not a fixed identity. <laughs> okay. This isn't, it's, it's not something that can't change. We can inhabit multiple of these at the same time. And, you know, the origins of attachment theory, at least like what we talk a lot about here in the United States, the dude who, who created it, Bowlby, John Bowlby, <laughs> you know, he was like a white cis guy. And so how he defined healthy attachment and healthy relation relationships, attentive caregiver was a very, um, it's from a very Eurocentric dyadic family structure. And as we know, healthy families look a lot of different ways. It's not one mom, one dad who are married, right? It's not mom is the caregiver and attends to the infant need. And if she doesn't do that, then like there's a disruption and then we got to look at the attachment styles. Right. And it's also caused harm in certain communities. Attachment theory has been used to weaponize against indigenous families. Right. So there's like a case Racine versus Woods. I think it was in in Canada where, you know, the Canadian CPS ACS system is basically using this very narrow idea of like healthy attachment and healthy family 
patterns and styles that's very Eurocentric. They're trying to apply it to indigenous family structures, indigenous ways of caregiving and child rearing, and they just don't translate. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, indigenous children have been removed from their families because of that. So it's important for us to understand the larger picture behind like attachment theory, you know, attachment styles that come from attachment theory. So I wanted to like name that as well. Wow. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right that it is super important to understand the cultural implications and to know that what is true for you isn't true for everyone, both as individuals and culturally. And so much of our relationship to therapy, as we know it here in the United States, is rooted in Western ideals. And and as we know, so much of those are motivated by this like maniacal, forceful energy of conquering and dominating and like egocentrism, right? Like that's really inherent to our culture. And I, I didn't even know this about that history of attachment style. So I really appreciate you shedding light and, um, and like teaching us on about this research, you know, and how, you know, this research was meant to help us heal. And it's also been used for harm and for racist means. So thank you. I love that you added that. I also want to say that um, for me, understanding my attachment style, you know, in my own personal journey has been so important and helpful for me because, um, Well, because it made me feel less crazy, honestly, you know, it helped me understand myself and my triggers and why I would get so reactive. So I actually felt really seen by um, working with attachment styles, but definitely, and thank you for, for um, emphasizing this, but definitely it's important to remember, and I know we've talked about this on the pod before, but yeah, it's it's so important to remember that your attachment styles aren't fixed. Like we can heal and grow and change and move that needle closer to becoming more secure, if not, you know, becoming fully secure. So I super appreciate you bringing that in too. Yeah. And it is important that if we're talking about, okay, how has our trauma and lived experience in childhood affected how we show up in relationships in adulthood? Yeah, totally. Like it absolutely informs how did we relate to our caregivers and the first adults in our lives and how do we show up now? And so I want to encourage all of us to think about when we're showing up as adults in relationship, we're always orienting towards safety, right? We're orienting towards things that are familiar, right? Maybe not all of those experiences were safe, but it's familiar, right? And so with familiarity becomes predictability and that is safe in a lot of contexts. And so if we're thinking about safety, we can't leave out like our our nervous systems, our regulated nervous systems. And so I'm curious about kind of bringing in relationship patterns, communication styles and figuring out, okay, when we're feeling unseen and unheard, as children, it's absolutely showing up in how we attach or how we build relationship as adults, but what is driving that, right? So yeah, we have 
the anxiety, we have the avoidance, we have, we're not sure safety feels dangerous, dangerous feels safe, right? We have all the different ways that that trickles down into how we show up. But I kind of look at it from a lens of like our nervous system and getting really good at being in relationship to what comes up when this person said this thing that triggered us, what comes up when we want to shy away or we want to walk away and be like, I can't deal, right? What comes up? And is there is there spaciousness there? Is there a wiggle room? Is it safe now for us to experiment with that, with different ways of being? So let's let's have an example of like, let's say I'm in relationship with someone. I have a partner and this person, I feel unseen and unheard by this partner. And let's say I've had all the experiences that I named earlier, like so many traumatic experiences around feeling unseen and unheard. What might be my default communication? Is it like shutting down? Is it like, how, how might it look? Yeah. Yeah. I think for some folks, definitely shutting down. I'm not going to say anything because this could create conflict and I'm going to avoid that conflict isn't safe. For others, it's, oh my God, you're not seeing me. I need to get loud and I need to get loud now because if I don't speak up for myself, then nobody will. And this is just going to continue. And this is also going to lead to something bigger and worse. I feel like I have experimented with both. My first response throughout my life, it was, I shut down. I don't say anything. I kind of do what I did with the ex-boyfriend who told me to change And I just go like, okay, I just have to avoid conflict here because I want love so much. Then more recently, as I started like being like, I matter, you know, I'm like doing my affirmations. I'm like, my fucking feelings matter, you know, whatever. Then I went to rage or just not really rage, but like, I mean, my version of rage is just like, I'm really mad, you know, (laughs) and just being like, what the fuck? And just like, telling someone like, what the fuck with this? And it's been interesting for me to kind of see that evolution and also to realize that like, neither one really works. Like, I feel better about the what the fuck version. (laughs) But it's still, I'm not able to have the kinds of conversations with people that I want to have when I when that's my come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, we're not saying either of these are bad or wrong. But particularly with the what the fuck, which I've also used and tapped into and have worked through plenty of times, the what the fuck, we're still taking on the labor of, I need to convince you, I need to educate you why I matter. I need to convince you, I need to educate you about my worth, right? And that's not, that's not our job. That's draining. That still centers somebody else's needs, That still centers in some of the examples you shared earlier, that centers someone who is invested in these larger systems, maybe of not seeing you and your humanity, right? And so I guess with the rage, I think the rage is important and we have to feel it. We have to build a relationship to it. We have to allow it to transform us, right? Rage, we think of fire. Fire is so transformational. And I feel like it teaches us how to like protect our own energy, right? And so am I using my energy and my labor 
to over and over again, convince, 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 educate, educate, educate. This is who I am. This is why I matter. This is why you should care. I understand that's important. Those are important dialogues to have. But if our relationship is centered around that, we have to look at that. We have to zoom out because you taking a step back from the dynamic is you being able to see and hear yourself. Number one, we're still not seeing ourselves when we're centering someone else. Yeah. Holy shit. I feel like that's such a profound uh, reframe. I, I recently had a friend breakup and right before the end, I was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> like, And you're so right that it, w- it was absolutely me trying to convince this person that my feelings mattered. And what ended up happening was shortly after that, this person's, the way that she was showing up with me, I just, I, I finally looked at it and I was like, over and over and over again, I am not seen by you. I mean, this is a dialogue I was having in my head. I didn't say it to her. I was like, oh, I'm seeing this now over and over and over again. I'm having to beg you to show up with love and care. I finally, I was like, I don't want that friendship. I don't want the friendship where I have to scream to be heard or I have to beg to be seen. And I, I, I made the choice for me to walk away from that friendship, but it had never occurred to me that, yeah, when you get in that space where that transformational rage comes up, that it, that part that like, yes, we want to look at that, but the transformation wasn't about me changing her. It was about me changing me. It was about me saying, yeah, I know I really want a a best friend, but this isn't it. It's just, this is just not it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And how do we, cause we all, we all have those experiences, right. And how do we navigate them in a way where seeing ourselves and honoring ourselves, we stay soft, we stay open, we stay vulnerable, right? Because we have every reason to not. We have every reason to like put up our walls or cut people out, you know? We where so many of us are survivors of all type of things. And how do we stay open? How do we stay clear about seeing this other person's humanity in that they're not able to give me what I need right now. And that's not about me. That's just where they're at in their journey. Yeah. So let me, let me end with this question. And I feel like it's kind of what we're getting into right now is just like in your experience and the work that you do, what do you find to be effective when we're healing from these chronic experiences of feeling unseen and unheard? So I love that you use the word chronic, right? Because I hear chronic and it's like chronic is community. Chronic, this is collective. This is big. And we know that healing happens in community. Healing from feeling unseen and unheard by others is not going to happen by yourself. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Right. totally. It's not going to happen alone. It's not going to happen just with your therapist one-on-one in isolated sessions. And so what I can offer is... Right. So steps we've kind of already covered, which is like, let's get clear about who you are. Who is your essence? 
how do you show up in the world? How do you feel safe? How do you feel validated? How do you experience joy with who and where? Getting clear about that helps us get to know our needs and our desires better. And when we know our needs and our desires, that can help us set ground rules, set boundaries for the type of relationships we want to build. Who can honor these very foundational things? And I will say, this is all the work that's happening here, you know, internally. And when I say with community, we're also asking ourselves, how am I seeing and hearing those around me as well? What are the tools that I need to sharpen that can help me better communicate with my community when I'm not feeling seen, when I'm not feeling heard? And this thing that happens very common when we have trauma, when we have been hurt again and again, when we have this narrative of nobody sees me, nobody hears me, we're not always great at seeing and hearing other people. Mm. We're too raw. And so someone's wounds bumping up against our wounds it's really, really hard for us to be like, oh, this person is having a trauma response. The way I said this thing, I wonder if they're thinking of this or their family or their da, 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 da. Like we're not able to meet them there because we're still doing our own work. But what I encourage us is the work of feeling seen and heard. We also have to be practicing seeing and hearing others right? So it's essential that we are giving the same care and compassion that we are asking from other people. This is a muscle. You know, we get very sensitive. If we are not seen in just the right way, I can't handle it. If this person fucks up in this way, then I I can't, I can't be in relationship with them. But part of healing is building our capacity for that safety and that tolerance within ourselves so that you know, we've done the work, we honor, we see and accept ourselves first, regardless of how somebody messes up, regardless of what a larger system thinks about us, we can be present to our own journey. And that helps us increase capacity to be present for other people's journey. Because the reality is someone might fuck up or not be able to see you exactly how you need to be seen. Most, I would say most people are going to fuck up and most people are not going to know how to see you and exactly how you need to be seen. But that doesn't mean we walk away. When we're doing this healing work, when we're building our capacity, we can hold that with love and we can hold that with honesty. And part of our work is getting brave when it is safe to say, hey, this is actually how I need you to see me. This is actually how I need you to hear me. Does that make sense? And am I seeing and hearing you? How are we in relationship to each other? I can teach you how I need to be seen and I need to be heard. That's important. That's part of our work. We have to teach people. And I know that that is really hurtful sometimes. And I know that like, it's not appropriate at every step of our journey to be teaching people. But when we're ready, when we're ready to be in community and build long lasting relationships with folks, part of that is doing the messy work of fucking up and then trying again, you know, fucking up, trying again, and then also you being open to the same. So, and that takes time. That takes lifetimes. (laughs) Yeah. That's something that I've really like thought a lot about recently is what does it look like to build intimacy? And I, I haven't thought, I, I actually have talked with my therapist a ton about community and it's something that I feel like 
I don't know why, but it has been something that has, hasn't felt easy to, I mean, this is a side note, but I went to Cuba illegally once and I was floored by their level of community. Like the way they are in community is leaps and bounds. I mean, and I remembered one of these men that I was hanging out with, lovely man. He said to me, is it true that in the United States, people don't know their neighbors? And I was like, yeah, it's true. Like, I don't know. I literally don't know. I have neighbors on either side. I know one of the neighbors, but I don't know the other one at all. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that, where this isolation is in our culture. And I've thought a lot about building community and what that looks like. And I know for me, part of my work growing up with narcissism has been walking away from people where I know I'm not safe. And I think for a long time, I didn't, I didn't do that. I stayed in relationships for a very long time that I, I just wasn't ever going to be emotionally safe in. And so, but, you, but there's that middle space, right? Of like, yes. How do we stay in relationships with the people who are fallible, but want to repair? And then how do we know growing up in an, in emotionally unsafe homes? Like, how do we know when to walk away too? And I think like, I love that you brought that in that piece around creating community through allowing people to be fallible, to see and hear them and to also feel seen and heard by them, that exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We have black and indigenous communities to think we have queer and trans communities to look to historically oppressed groups that have had to divest from these larger systems out of survival and create their own communities, right? Create new structures and new ways of being in relationship to each other. It absolutely makes sense. You said earlier, the loneliness is palpable. It's like, we're, suppo we're supposed to be in community. Humans are not supposed to exist in this isolated, like capitalism, whatever they have us, we don't even know our neighbors. This isn't natural for us, right? So it makes so much sense that you're feeling that. We all are. Yeah. And we're all healing also. Mm -hmm. Well, some of us are healing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add one more kind of layer to this conversation because part of my lens and how I view therapy and mental health care, I bring in spirituality, right? Like, I don't believe that we can separate our mental health from our spiritual health, from our emotional and our physical, right? And so... I also don't believe that like the healing and the relationships stop earth side. And so one thing that comes up a lot in my practice, you know, maybe this is like a generalization, but in my experience, at least being in community and then also being a queer non-binary therapist, working with a lot of like queer and trans and non-binary people, our relationship to spirituality is um, special and unique. And I see like an openness there, especially in the past few years. And so ancestral work and altar work and making the space and the time in your life to sit down and be like, who were my ancestors? How can I talk to them? Do I want to journal? Do I want to meditate? Do I want to start an altar practice? 
they always show up. <laughs> they always show up in really beautiful ways. Um, one of the, the things that I do like outside of my private practice is mediumship. So when I sit with people for readings, I've never had a session where no spirit didn't arrive. And so with our loneliness, with our need and our desire to feel seen and feel heard, I want to just remind you all that you have ancestors, you have family members, you have folks in the spirit realm who care about you and who want you to see and hear them. And I want to say that in a way that destigmatizes it, right? It's not scary. It's not weird, right? Like these are all byproducts of colonization teaching us to fear our ancestors. But there's, you got a whole team of folks in the spirit realm who are waiting for you to hear and see them um, and who have a bit more perspective <laughs> because just because you die, it doesn't mean like you're growing and you're changing stops. You actually get to keep growing and changing and evolving. So I'm going to, I wanted to add that. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. I also uh, read cards and um, I always felt sort of mystified, like who's giving me these answers? Like who's talking to me, you know? And I have an Oracle deck that has a card that says it's about your deceased loved one. I think it says like your deceased loved one wants you to know that they're okay or something, something along those lines. And I, I would pull it and I would be like, oh, okay, that's cool. But then I started asking who is it? Who, who wants, who is this person? And there are two, I have an uncle, a great uncle and my great grandmother on my dad's side who show up a lot. And every time they show, when I know it's them, I start sobbing because I feel so it's like I, my family was so fractured, right? Like we didn't, we didn't have connection within the family and I always wanted family. I always like, I would, look at these big families. I like growing up, I tried to sort of like become Mormon a little bit because I just loved how big their families were and how connected they were with family. And so knowing that I have these family members on the other side who are looking out for me and concerned about me and, and literally they see me, they're hearing me. When I pray, they're hearing me. They're they want to talk to me. They want to engage with me, which was something I really didn't feel from my dad to have that is so beautiful. And I wanted, I'll end by adding this story of a good friend of mine. She also has a fractured immediate family, but she was really close with her grandmother who passed when she was, I think like around 10 or so. And she bought a landline phone, like one of those kind of old fashioned dial phones that's pretty and ornate. She bought one of those and she will literally, when she's struggling, she'll pick it up and talk out loud to her grandmother. Like it's her, it's like a line. Yeah. Her line to her grandma. Portal, yeah. Yeah. Yes, a portal. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you brought that in because we, when we have connection to spirit in whatever way that looks like, it is this this additional supportive way of feeling seen and heard. Mm -hmm. Nat, thank you so much for coming on and for like all of your beautiful perspective and everything that you added to this conversation. If people want to get a hold of you, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, you know, just like 
this opportunity to come and talk. This has been really lovely, Remy. So if folks want to find me, they can visit my website. That is sunshadowhealing.com. And, uh, you know, you can get in touch with me through the website. And I'm also on Instagram at sunshadowhealing. Great. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you want to hear covered, hit me up. Actually, a friend of mine asked me to do this one. So I'm always taking your suggestions. And if you want to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's a really cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. And speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5. I pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to, just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the Patrama Party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.